0: Well, good morning. I want to echo that question to you as well. Who could you invite to Alpha? And the reason I want to echo is for a few reasons. Number one, we have seen many people come to join our church family. We've seen many people enter into God's family. Many of the baptisms that we celebrate every year have the roots that begin in Alpha. If you have ever had uh, an opportunity to sit in one of these pews and watch somebody get baptized and a name popped in your head saying, man, I wish I could sit here and watch so-and-so be baptized one day. Whatever that life transformation may look like, there's a good chance that Alpha is where that started for people. And so this question to who are you going to invite, is, is, it's pivotal. It's pivotal in not just for our church, but for you and for your loved ones as well. Did you know that it's well over 80% of people who start to come to a church or start to ask questions about Jesus do so through a connection with a friend or a relative that's you that's you to somebody in your life and you could be the person the catalyst that starts that conversation and here's the thing you need to know you're not responsible for their answer you're simply responsible to ask the question and allow the answer of the yes or the no if they'll come to Alpha to, to flow from there but simply ask the question We have these little reminder cards, we have these invite cards at a table in the foyer. If you have more questions about Alpha, if you would like to register for it, or if you want to even just talk, learn more about it, I'm going to be out there after the service. Feel free to come chat with me. I'd be more than happy to discuss that with you and, and see who you could invite to join us for Alpha this year. Well, let's talk about this week's message now as well. Uh, As you know, if you've been with us this summer, we're working our way through the Ten Commandments that we're referring to as the Ten Words to Live By. And this week, we are on week number nine. Almost, I was writing this week and I could not believe that we are on week nine of ten, that we're getting near the end of it. And, and, you know, it's the end of summer and lots of families are getting that last kind of kick of the can to be away for a weekend. And we're going to start seeing lots of people come back in the next couple of weeks here. But here we are at the number nine out of ten. And this is one that I think a lot of people are familiar with. A lot of people are aware of this one because as kids, there's a good chance that somebody, whether it's a parent or a Sunday school teacher, whoever it is, there's a good chance somebody at some point taught you the ninth commandment that simply, as we're taught, it goes, thou shalt not lie, right? Somebody, I guarantee, somebody at some point told you thou shalt not lie. It's a value that's built into the fabric of our society, and whether it's a parent or who, who taught you the power of truth, or maybe there's a, a partner, a, you know, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a, a spouse that you have who, who emphasize that honesty matters most in relationships. There's this, this value of honesty and truthfulness and not lying that's built into the fabric of our society. It's such a simple principle that we can boil down to the idea being this. In every situation, at all times, no matter the consequences, tell the truth, Right? Well, there you have it. You know, I've gone a little long the last two weeks of my sermons. So if, if that's all there is to it, perhaps we'd just pray and go to Swiss I? I, I don't know. Maybe we'll just be done. Thou shalt not lie. Every situation, all times, no matter the consequences, tell the truth. Amen? All right, let's go for lunch. Or you're not leaving. You might be, be on to this there's more to it, perhaps, than just do not lie. Because you might already be thinking, well, is that really what it means? Is that really what it says? Is there more going on here? Because I can already think about these little white lies that I just sometimes tell that seem appropriate in the moment, right? Like, like the moms might be getting a little bit nervous right now because they might think that I'm going to head down this direction of telling the kids it's okay if you lie. And, and so, just to put your mind at ease, kids... It's not okay to lie, okay? It is wrong to lie. So hear me when I say that, it's wrong to lie. So when you go ask mom and dad, is there really a Santa Claus? And when you go ask mom and dad, is there really a tooth fairy? It's wrong to lie. And so when they say yes, there you have it. You have your answer, right? Because mom and dads, we wouldn't lie about that, would we? Because it's wrong to lie, We wouldn't want to break the ninth command. We just taught little Johnny and Susie that you can't lie. So we have to live by example, right? But are there also moments where we have these, what's referred to as must-lie situations? Do those exist in life? There's uh, a few years ago, on Saturday nights, I have like these old man hairs that grow in. and I have to trim them off before I speak on Sunday morning. So I do it on Saturday nights. And so I'm like, like trimming my beard and my ears, right? Any other guys? Yeah. Little random ear hairs, right? And so then I forget, I was tired, and I went to trim my eyebrows, and I put a guard on. And, it, and I shaved my eyebrow off. <laughs> Saturday night, <laughs> before I'm going to come preach. No eyebrow. Nadine! She comes in, what's wrong? I shaved off my eyebrow. Is it noticeable? Must lie situation. No. No. <laughs> Blends right in. Such light, hair, you can barely even tell. And I spent, like, the whole Sunday camera on this side of my face, just talking to this side so you can, we could see this one. Must lie situation, what is she going to do? Oh, my gosh, that's so hideous. And like completely wreck my confidence for the next Sunday. Or is she going to say, no, must lie situation, so I have confidence when I stand in front of you on that particular Sunday. There's these what a light, white lie situations. There's these what's referred to sometimes as must lie situations that come across. And so... How do we understand this ninth commandment of thou shalt not lie? Now, I, I'm not going to condone lying up here. That's, that's not where I'm going. Uh, but simply to say that this commandment means do not lie is not exactly what the ninth word to live by is talking about. And so you, You'll see what I mean when we look at the full text. Because what it actually says in Exodus 20, verse 16 is, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's more words. That has more meaning than you shall not lie. Does it mean the same thing? It means something similar. But it is way too simple to simply say, thou shalt not lie. You see, remember, these commandments, these last six of the ten, the first four are given in context of our relationship with God, and the last six in context of our relationship to one another. And so this is given within that understanding, and it's a guideline to help us to protect truth and to help protect order and to help preserve truth integrity within the community. And so what this is more specifically talking about here is do not lie when your words would violate another person's reputation or deprive them of rights. Do not lie when you are motivated by selfish gain at the expense of others. Do not lie when your words could call your own integrity into question. You see, because those sorts of things just tear apart the fabric of society of the community in which they exist. And one of the primary places that this commandment would have been applied back when it was first given was to maintain the integrity of the judicial system that existed within society, the law and the order of society. That's one of the main places that this would be in effect. And we can see evidence of this if you keep reading into Exodus chapter 23. This command is actually unpacked in further detail with courtroom language. It, it, with courtroom language, it goes on to talk about do not give a false report when you're a witness against somebody. It goes on in Exodus 23 to say, do not be a witness for a person who is guilty. And it goes on also to say, do not accept a bribe for your words because the bribe will twist your words when you give witness and testimony against a person. You see, back in the time this command first came out, they didn't have DNA evidence. They didn't have cell phones everywhere that had pictures of everything. There was no CSI teams that existed. The court systems were solely dependent upon reliable testimony from eyewitnesses. And if you were going to bear false witness against your neighbor, that was a threat to the health of the community, to the well-functioning integrity of the community. And this still exists today. Uh, Not many of us go to court very often, thankfully, hopefully. But if you ever go to court and are sort of sworn in as a witness, they will ask you to actually do this same thing today. You will, you'll be asked to often take a Bible and, and to put a Bible in your left hand and raise your right hand. And they'll ask you, even, even in Canadian courts today, say, Do you swear that the evidence you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth So help you, God? In effect, our Canadian court system even today is asking you to swear not to break the third and the ninth word to live by. They're asking you to swear not to misuse God's name, and they're asking you to swear to not bear false testimony against your neighbor. still happens in our court systems today because we're trying to protect the integrity and have reliable witnesses that come forward for the sake of the fabric of society. Now, in giving the ninth word to live by, God reveals his concern for the integrity of these things, of community and justice. But here's the thing. If this was just a matter about giving truthful testimony in the courts of law, that's a pretty limited application. And for most of us, we'd be like, fine, now we can pray and go to Swiss Because now I understand where this applies. But this word to live by actually relates to not just that. It actually relates to how we speak to and how we speak about those that we are in community with. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time today, in a very, very practical manner, is on the idea that this word to live by relates to how we speak to and about those that we are in community with. You see, by extension of how we speak it causes us also to challenge, to consider our hearts towards our neighbor. Because our hearts actually tend to, are, tend to be revealed by the words that we speak about our neighbor. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 12. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in, uh, in verse 34, he says this. He says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So does this command tell us not to lie? Yes, absolutely it does. But more specifically, it says, do not lie when lying matters most, when your words could harm others. Do not lie when it is for personal gain at the expense of others. And that has maybe more daily regular application for more people than just how this gets played out in a court of law. And so as I said, for the next few minutes that I have left, I want to get really practical and just talk about and focus upon three common types of speech on how we talk to and how we talk about one another. That sometimes gets overlooked even within the church but could be considered examples of bearing false witness against a person. And the reason that this is important for us to consider is because the God of truth and love wants his people to speak to and about one another in truth and love. When we bear false witness, we don't do that. The God of truth and love wants his people to speak to and about one another in truth and love. So here's the first one. The first way that somebody could possibly bear false witness against a neighbor, and it's one of the most obvious ones, is something referred to as reviling, you ever heard that word before? Reviling. You've probably heard the word revile before, but reviling is like, is like this active verb. And, and what we're talking about here is, is not just reviling somebody where we, we're, like, we're like mean to them and have disdain and dislike for them. This is going to the step of actually using words maliciously to attack them. Using words maliciously to cause them harm to go against them. It could include things like like name-calling, slander, mockery, scoffing, even subtler forms of, of like gossip, where the purpose of the gossip, the purpose of the story we're sharing is to attack the person's character. This would be considered forms of reviling. And it's something that is done sometimes masked in humor or masked in sarcasm, because we know we shouldn't be saying this thing, but I'm really going to say it, so if I just do it sarcastically, or if I, if I do it and then <laughs> just chuckle at the end, it's all fine, right? But, but we know that the origin comes actually from the heart, and maybe even from a sinful heart, as Jesus says in Matthew 12. You know, and cover to cover in the Bible, the Bible stands against these types of speech. And we see actually this one, you might be familiar with the story, it's quite a, I find it a humorous story, uh, that I think shows an example of the damage and examples of types of reviling found in, in 1 Kings chapter 21. And it, it may not be a familiar story to you because it's found in 1 Kings, and we don't read 1 Kings a whole lot, but, but here's, here's a synopsis of it. it. It's a story about King Ahab, who is the king of Israel at the time, and, and not a very good king, not a very mature king either. And he's in his palace looking out his window. And he sees this beautiful plot of land, like, like fertile, rich soil plot of land. And it's currently being used by a guy named Naboth as a vineyard. But Ahab is like, you know what? I need a vegetable garden. And man, I look out there and the, the, the tomatoes I could grow, the, the cucumbers, the peppers. I want to look out the window and see my potatoes, cucumbers, and tomatoes out there. And so he goes to Nabob, and he says, I want to buy the vineyard off of you. I'll give you a fair price, or I'll even give you an even better vineyard, you know, further out of town. But Nabob says, fair deal, but, you know, it's not about money. The the issue is that this vineyard has been in my family for generations, and I I couldn't possibly part with it. It's been in my family for generations. And so Ahab, like a a spoilt little three-year-old, He goes, but I really, really, really want it. And then he stomps his feet up to his room, and he flops down on his bed, and he pouts. And his wife Jezebel walks in, and she sees him kind of kicking his feet and pouting in bed. And she goes, what's wrong with you? It's no way for a king to act. He says, but I really, really, really want it for my vegetables. And she goes, well, I'll go and get it for you. And so she writes letters in Ahab's name to all of the nobles, And the land saying, we want to hold a time of fasting, invite Naboth to this fast, put him at a table with a scoundrel on either side of him, and in the middle of the fast, have these scoundrels say that Naboth Naboth has, um, has cursed God and cursed the king. And when they ask for evidence, they will testify that this has taken place, and then he is to be taken outside of the house and stoned to death. And that's exactly what they do. The nobles hold this time of fasting. They bring Naboth to the table and they put these, these liars on either side of them. And they go, this guy cursed God. This guy cursed the king. And they take him outside and they kill him. He was reviled in the words of the letters. He was reviled by the nobles who plotted against him. He was reviled by the villains who brought false testimony against him. And it caused incredible harm. Not just taking his vineyard from him, but actually leading to his death. And once Naboth is dead, Ahab gets what he wants at the expense of others. And he gets up and he goes out and he plants his tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers. You probably hadn't heard that story before, had you? First Kings chapter 21, to you the whole thing. Bit of an extreme example, but it shows the power that words have. That our words may not have the power to literally kill somebody, but our words still have the power to do serious harm to somebody. And while we not may not be doing harm physically to somebody, reviling words matter, and reviling words can wound very deeply. You may have heard that saying, six and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You want to bet? Ask a student going back to school on Monday who got bullied all last year how they feel about going to school this year. Reviling words hurt. Ask a coworker who got kind of chewed out in front of the rest of the staff how they feel about going to work the next day. Ask a a political figure, a public person online, if they go and read the comments online about themselves anymore. Even just this past couple of days, our deputy prime minister in Fort McMurray was assaulted verbally as she walked into into an office in Fort McMurray. I guarantee you the sting of that still feels today for her. See, Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Here's the thing that controlling the tongue is considered like controlling the tongue, like considering our words before we speak them, like before we type them, is considered a hallmark of godly wisdom throughout the Bible. And it's amazing because the same tongue that can harm by tearing down, the same tongue can also heal anxieties and the same tongue can heal sorrows that a person feels. And the issue is not whether you're right or wrong in what you're saying. There's a lot of righteous people who are very, very right but do things very, very wrong. There's a lot of very righteous people who have very unrighteous words on how they communicate to people. And so the question is not whether or not you are right or wrong. The question is, will your words that you're speaking and typing build up, or will those words tear down? And we have to especially watch this online, because there's a special level of boldness people feel when it becomes impersonal with a screen or a device between us and the individual. We need to be very cautious about that when it's online in particular. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that we become ignorant or ignore and just become silent in the marketplace of ideas and opinions? Absolutely not. It means that we look for ways to graciously, gracefully correct people. It means that we look for ways to seek to build people up in love in the context of a loving relationship. And in the end, if kind words evade you, If you can't find any kind words, if the only words that seem to come to mind to speak or to type are words that will tear somebody down, remember something else that mom taught us. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. It's not always a bad choice in those moments. So, the first type of speech that we have to be careful of, because it's a way that people can bear false witness against a neighbor, is reviling. That one's pretty obvious. The second one I want to talk about is a lot more subtle. And I want to introduce it by asking you a question. When is a compliment not a compliment? <laughs> Maybe you think of some examples. You're like, I'm not sure that was genuine when that person said that to me. It sounded really flattering, but that's the difference right there. When is a compliment not a compliment? When a compliment is flattery. You see, flattery is a more subtle way of bearing false witness against somebody. The, the idea is to build somebody up in ways that misrepre- misrepresent them or your intentions towards them, and this is actually a form of, of manipulation that's masked in praise. And the purpose is to enhance a person's trust or favor towards you, usually for an ulterior motive. You see, this word "flatter" uh, comes from an old English word that means to, to kind of stroke with one hand, like you're like you're petting a dog, because. You never pet a cat, that's just silly, but you would pet a dog, right, to, to flatter a dog, not a cat, right, because cats are evil. But when you apply it to people, this is where we get this idea of like stroking an ego. You've probably heard that phrase, stroking a person's ego before. That's kind of where it comes from, to flatter them, to give them a sense of inflated self, but to inflate their self for selfish motives. And this is actually one of the tactics that Jesus's opponents employed against him so many times. You know, in Matthew twelve or Mark twelve, for example, we see an example of this where some Pharisees come to Jesus trying to trap him, and they begin in Matthew uh, Mark chapter twelve verse fourteen. They begin by coming to Jesus and going, "Jesus, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity." And Jesus, we know that you're not swayed very easily, if at all, by other people. And, and, and we know that you know better because you, you know people. You know them, and you know what their intentions are. And you, you have integrity, you have wisdom, you have truth. You, you, you teach the truth of God. Oh, unwaveringly teaching the truth of God in accordance with, with the word of God. Well done, Jesus, is what they say. Talk about buttering him up. Even a casual observer is on the sidelines going, look out, it's a trap. Right? And sure enough, uh, Jesus, your, your integrity and your, your truth and your wisdom, your use of words. Oh, by the way, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Is what they immediately followed up with. Like, this has nothing to do with it. They're trying to butter him up so they can, they can get closer and do harm to him is the purpose of it. You know, Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works, or a flattering mouth produces ruin within a person. You see, where reviling causes damage by tearing down, flattery tries to bring a person down by first bringing them up. It's actually a form of manipulation. Where you're offering praise in an effort to get what a person wants. And, you know, as a pastor, about the past 16, 17 years, I've been a pastor. I've run into this a number of times in, in just my own life. Given the fact that I have a bit of a, a platform with, you know, with a church and an office and things like that. People will come to me and they will try to get me to, to be involved in many things. Whether it's through, through letters that I receive in the mail, through emails, and even through conversations. I remember a number of years ago, uh, after one service, a gentleman came up to me and said, Pastor, oh, really good sermon young guy like you you got a bright future man you got a good head on your shoulders you you speak the truth you present godly values i am so blessed to to sit under your ministry and i was like well don't forget that i'm strikingly handsome as well right (laughs) you know no honestly the whole time i'm thinking where is this going like, even if that's all true, it, this just smells of flattery. Like, like, there's something more coming. And sure enough, sure enough, he, he went through all of that. And he goes, I, I'm in the middle of this letter-writing campaign. I'm trying to get, like, adult programs taken off of TV. And, you know, your name and your picture and your support, and maybe even you being a spokesperson for this, that, that would go a long way. Now, here's the problem. In principle, I agreed with his mission, what he was trying to do. But I could not be a part of it because of his tactics. Because the tactics that he was using, it just made me feel used. It made me feel like I was being manipulated into something that if he had come towards me in more of an authentic manner, I actually may have joined him in his mission. You see, if we have genuine praise and encouragement, don't don't let the example I just gave you dissuade you from offering that to a person. I can tell you as a pastor and staff and, and elders of the church, they appreciate the compliments and, and the good, kind words that are shared with us. So, so don't feel like you're going to be questioned if you, if you bring those things up. But, but here's the thing, we all do well to share genuine praise and genuine encouragement for the right reason. And there's many, many passages in Scripture that talk about this. One of probably the most prominent ones is found in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 29, where it says, Do not let any corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What this is saying to us number one, corrupt talk is, is would we'll be talking about false witnesses or false pretenses we have against a person, saying words that would do harm to them or to their reputation, reviling, flattering, etc. Don't allow these types of words to come out of our mouths. It's one of the forms of corrupt talk that's being discussed here. And Paul is saying that these types of things are just not becoming of one who follows the God of truth and love, but instead, genuinely build up others. Genuinely offer words of encouragement to others that speak truthfully for their gain. For their gain. Not for our own. Simply for their gain. And now if you are the recipient of one of these genuine words of encouragement, sometimes I watch people kind of squirm and go, oh, no, it's nothing. No, stop it. Do these sorts of responses. I encourage you not to do that. If it's a genuine affirmation, Receive it by saying no and pushing back, you're actually devaluing or making the person question, Well, maybe, maybe I didn't read the situation properly. You know, simply say thank you. That's it. Simply say thank you and allow that word of affirmation to motivate you towards humility and towards further good acts. So, reviling. And flattery are two common types of speech that can bear false witness towards a neighbor. And so you may actually be thinking, well, man, like, there's others that are out there. Maybe it's easier to just say nothing at all to anybody. Uh, But here's the problem with that, is that silence is the third one that I want to talk about. So, So choosing to say nothing at all is probably not going to work either. Because silence is the third way that sometimes we can bear false witness against a neighbor. And let me show you what I mean by that. A number of years ago, before I was a pastor... I uh, had a really good friend that I uh, went to church with and hung out with on weekends, and uh, we, we did a lot of things together, and he was looking for a job, so I hired him to come work inside sales for a company that I was managing. And he came and he worked there, and uh, you know we continued being friends. It was going really, really well. And this one time, we actually went to this uh, Promise Keepers event together, and it was, it was amazing, just this, such a meaningful, impactful presentation, one in particular I can remember, where, where a guy's name was Sean. Sean and I stood there, um, and they had us during this presentation, kind of, kind of look like face to face to each other, and that's hard for guys to look, like guys looking each other in the eye. It's really hard to do. But we stood there, and the guy was like, "We need to have brothers who we can look in the eye and speak truth to." And then he had to stand back to back, like we need brothers who have our back in every situation, so we know someone's got our back. And then the speaker said, we need brothers who will stand side by side with us so that we have somebody to journey together with, somebody to be a companion with, face-to-face, back-to-back, side-to-side. And, and Sean and I did this, and we were like, man, that we need brothers like that. A few days later, we go to work, and one of my other staff, um, who, who was having a really hard time, and he and I were challenged and struggled in a lot of different ways that were going. We're trying to work through it. But he comes out and just absolutely verbally assaults me in front of the entire staff. And I don't mean like, like flattery. It was like, like the, the, the depth of reviling in front of the entire staff, questioning my, my character, my faith, my work ethic, name calling me, like just awful angry words in front of everybody. And as I'm trying to defend myself, my friend who knew me so well, we'd gone to church together, we hung out together, we'd been friends for a long time, he sat there silently. Didn't say a word. And I'm thinking to myself, where were you? What was this whole back-to-back, side-to-side, face-to-face thing we just did? And right here in this live example, when I'm being dragged through the mud, where were you? Silence. And his lack of words stung. They stung just as much as the words that were being spoken to me in that particular moment. You see, it's not just the words that we speak that can bear false witness. It's also the words that we permit to be spoken can bear false witness. In Ecclesiastes 3, 7, it says there's a time to keep silent, but there is also a time to speak. When is it a time to speak? When the reputation of a good person that we know to be good is being run through the mud, it is time to speak. When the rights of a people are being suppressed, it is time to speak. When... Fellow believers are being mocked and attacked. It is time to speak on their behalf. There are many other times where it is time to speak because silence of a friend, of a brother, of a sister in Jesus Christ can be just as brutalizing as the reviling words that get shared. Now, there are times when we're not sure if we should speak or not. And I want to caution you against kind of a pendulum swing. If If you tended towards not speaking, it's like, okay, well, I heard a good sermon, so boom, pendulum goes over here. I'm just going to speak about everything. That, that's not the message either. We don't go from one extreme to the other because there are times we're not sure. And, and if we speak about everything, that's a whole different type of trouble we can get into. But each of us knows those moments. We, we know those moments. We feel them in the moment when, when we just know something's wrong. There are moments when we just feel the Holy Spirit's prompting us to speak and to stand into the gap and to act on behalf of another person. But sometimes we feel that and we know it, but because of fear sometimes because of a lack of others to stand with us, we just get overwhelmed by that feeling and it keeps us from speaking. And in those times, we allow false witness of a neighbor, brother, sister, to stand. We allow that false witness to stand. James 4, 17 says this. It says, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. See, when we talk about sin, there's two basic types of sin. There's sins of commission, which means that these are sins where we've taken action to commit. We've, we've done something to commit, a thought, a word, an act that is contrary to God's perfect will and character. And, and we've, we've done that. We've, we've acted upon that. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But it's contrary to his will and character. We've done it. It is a sin. Uh, reviling, flattery. Those are active things that would be considered sinful. But there's also these sins of omission. Sins of omission where we know we should have done something good. And as James 4 tells us here, being silent is a sin of omission. The absence of speaking when we know we should have done. The absence of acting when we know we should have. James 4 is saying there is a sin of omission. And silence in those moments makes us complicit in the sin of those who are bearing false witness. Because we allow it to stand and not be questioned and not be corrected. See, Christianity is not to be this passive form of spirituality. Christianity is is, is an active, transformational, preserving, defending of the faith. It's active. It moves forward. It's it's a mission. It's a movement that goes forward. It's active. It's transformational. It's preserving in nature. And when you sense a time to speak, I pray God will give you the courage and I pray that he would also give you the wisdom and the words to do it in truth and in love in those moments. Why? Because the God of truth and love wants his people to speak to and about one another in truth and love. So, does the ninth word to live by command us not to lie? Absolutely it does. But I hope we can see now a bit of a full understanding of what that means. That the words that we speak and, 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 and the words that we don't speak, those matter. They matter to others and they matter to God. Remember what we read in in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 through 35. Remember? It talked there about how our heart towards our neighbor is revealed quite often by our words. That's what it talked about in verse 34 and 35. But the heart of a person matters to God. It matters a lot. And because of that, we can keep reading verse 36 and 37 where Jesus continues by saying this. Everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for the empty words that they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So the worship team comes to join me on the platform here. I hope you understand this. See, at times others will hold us accountable for the words that we've spoken against them and not spoken. And I pray that when those things happen, it'll be done in love. It'll be done in a fashion that helps to preserve healthy community and that that helps to preserve integrity within the justice that should exist within our society. But even if we're not held accountable for words that others speak towards us or that we speak towards other people, we can be guaranteed that God knows. God knows our words, and he will ask us about every word, every empty word that we've spoken. But praise be to God that when we hear the words of Jesus Christ that when we accept the truth of the words of Jesus Christ and about the sacrifice of Him, that forgiveness is granted, that we are not condemned by our words, but we are saved by His words and by His actions, that when we hear and we believe, we can receive, and we are no longer condemned by those things. And we then find ourselves in a position to go forward and to build our lives upon His words that we find in the Word of God. And they call us to confess the times to one another when we maybe have torn others down. To confess those times. But then to go forward also and to offer words of encouragement to build one another up. To to strengthen the community here at West Meadows and to strengthen the community that exists in the world around us. You see, we have the truth and love of God revealed to us in his word. The Bible. And we therefore have everything that we need to live out and to teach us to live those words through the example of Christ. And so I encourage you as we talk about this very practical aspect of how we talk to and about each other, to be in the Word. To not just be judged or known by our words, but to be in the Word. And to be building our lives upon God's Word. And upon that, so that we would not bear false witness towards one another, but rather we would live as true witnesses of the grace, truth, and love in word and in deed. Be honor and glory to Jesus Christ.